Welcome to the second part of this resolution podcast, looking at issues in the family justice system. I'm Edward Cook, a family lawyer and mediator, and I'm being joined by Sir James Munby, former president of the Family Division and chair of the Nuffield Family Justice Observatory, and Adele Ballantyne, co-chair of Resolutions Parenting After Parting Committee. On the last occasion, we looked at the current state of the family justice system insofar as it relates to parents and children, and some of the improvements to the system recommended by the Family Solution Group's report. We will start this part of the podcast by looking at early education for parents. Since recording this podcast, the Separated Parents Information Programme has been replaced by CAFCAS's new Planning Together for Children programme, showing how fast things are changing in the family justice system. Adele, divorce affects children every bit as much as it affects parents. They go through the same grief cycle, the same journey, and yet the system doesn't in any way reflect that. Would you agree? No, it doesn't. And it's not the fault of of legal professionals because you're not taught it. But it is vital because obviously you have a life, you've had a childhood, you've grown up, you've had parents. Some family lawyers, their parents will have split up. They'll have come through a similar experience themselves as children. And of course, when you're sitting with somebody who may have just explained to you a very similar experience, you are going to react to that and, and you may or may not be aware that that is going to change how you proceed with that person. It's interesting. It never ceases to amaze me how many family practitioners are conflict avoiders. They don't like conflict. And I find that really, really funny because I always thought that people going into the legal profession, you know, they would be good with conflict because let's face it, you go to court and there's conflict, there's battles, there's things going on. And, and certainly with families, you know, we we do need to step away from that. But when you have somebody walking through your door, they are traumatised, they are grieving, their happily ever after is now not going to happen. They're going to be angry, frustrated, frightened. They are in a position of not knowing what's going to happen. So they come to that legal professional who is their knight in shining armour, who is going to help them at this crucial time in their life. And I hear many professionals saying to me, Adele, you know, I have to go with my client's instructions. And I totally get that. However, the way that I look at this is if you were going to see an orthopaedic surgeon because you needed to have your leg removed, you might have done some research. You would go to see that consultant and he or she would say to you, right, this is what I'm going to do. These are the pros and cons. This are the likely outcomes. I'll go through all of, of, of the things that could happen to you while you're having that operation. And then if you're OK, you sign the consent form. Now, um, I'm from a medical background, I'm married to a GP. And in all my time in a hospital, I don't think I've ever seen a patient turn around and say, yes, I hear what you're saying, but actually I want you to do the operation this way. I've looked it up on YouTube. I know exactly what to do and I want you to do it this way. This is about how to have good conversations with emotionally charged people. So just because one day they walk through your door and they're on that day in the anger stage of grief and they want to punish their ex-partner, that's not the day to sit and have a good conversation about compromise and co-parenting because they're going to be angry. But if you have early intervention and good uh, education for family law professionals that say, if your client's like this, Now's the time to have a cup of tea and say, gosh, 
obviously you, you look really upset, angry today. Tell me about what's gone on. Because even though you're not a therapist, even though you're not going to solve it for them, the fact that they offload that might mean that you can have a reasonable conversation where they will listen to you. I think you put off in a very important point from the point of the lawyers. In the final analysis, the lawyer has to accept the client's instructions unless they're improper. But before you get to that point, the job of the lawyer surely is to explore, to try and lead and guide the client to something which is in the client's interest but is sensible, and certainly not to try and just accept, yes, I'm going to do this, if what the, what the client is saying is not in the client's interest or is misguided. And, 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 and I suspect yeah. that some, some lawyers find it much easier than others. Um, they've got the personality, the, the, the confidence to uh, lead, to guide, to encourage, whereas others may be too ready just to say, well, those are your instructions, yes. And that's about information and support, and we can talk about that a bit more in terms of training later. I just want to pick up on something that I, I was reviewing the Family Solution Group report in the context of thinking about this session. Just by way of example, in two other English-speaking countries that we know well, in, in Canada, separating parents are required to attend a parenting separation program in which they're informed of the possible impact of divorce on children and how they can protect their children as much as possible. So that's a requirement in Canada. Yeah. And in New Zealand, the government actually offers parenting through separation programs, which are free to attend. Uh, we're just light years behind that, aren't we, in this country? I mean, we, we all we have are SNPs, which, as we all know, People rarely go unless they end up in the court system, by which time it's far too late. But we are, and part is the problem, which is deeply ingrained in society, and never more so than at present, waving the flag and shouting British is best. And lawyers have grown up with the idea of the English legal system, not the British legal system, because there's no such thing, the English legal system is the best in the world. And what have we got to learn from um, lesser mortals uh, in other countries? And traditionally, the view has been nothing at all. And uh, that attitude has been breaking down in recent years, but there's still very much a pecking order. And it's much easier, I suspect, to sell the concept that Australia or Canada has something useful to teach us than to sell the concept that America has something useful. It is so, so ignorant, so short-sighted. And one of the great successes in the family justice system is FDAC, Family Drug and Alcohol Court. That is something which was invented in America. And we have it in this country. It was the late, great Nick Crichton, in his own time, went to America, saw it working, thought there was something we had in this country. But typically... Our attitude is, well, if the Americans and we don't want it, they'll be much, much more receptive and open to picking the best from around the world. We need to say that on this particular thing, Australia's not the answer. On this particular thing, we think Canada's not the answer. On this particular thing, Sweden. The answers are out there, aren't they? The answers are all out there. And these parents will say, when they have decided that their relationship is over, we don't want our children to be damaged by this. And then because they don't have that information about what parental conflict can do to children, what, you know, not being able to have a relationship with both parents and their future partners when it is safe to do so, it 
if they don't have that information about what their children are going to need from them, then actually what happens is they go into the legal process and they do the one thing that they really don't want to do to their children because what they do is they lose sight they lose focus of of what their children need and children should be front and center rather than in the middle and what i often see with with some legal professionals is that they stop looking at what the children need and focus on what the parents need and you know as soon as we're doing that this is if we 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 are giving into parental need rather than looking at what is going to be right for the child. But in a sense, the health system encourages that. Mm, it does. So it is quite extraordinary. In a care case, the child is a party, the child is represented, and the child is given an independent voice called the guardian. None of that happened in private law cases. We have this bonkers idea that somehow, miraculously, if we let two parents slug it out in court, in some ill-defined way, the right answer for the children will emerge. It's completely stupid. And that is reinforced by the fact that children are typically not parties. There's no guardian. There's no social worker. Um, they're not seen by the judge. And sometimes they won't even be seen by Kafka's when yep, I suppose you get that. And even when they are, sometimes that is not successful because of the, the lack of education, knowledge, mm. mentoring of those mm. professionals. And again, when they are, there often isn't enough time. No, absolutely. Mm. Um, but it goes back to the very beginning. And I was, again, context of the Family Solutions Group report. as a, a survey in 2019 from the Man Family Mediation Council on, on mediation. Uh, it said one third of all cases involved children aged 10 or over still living at home. Children were only consulted in 26% of those cases. 26% of children were consulted. That's my experience as a child abuse mediator. So often parents, one parent will be keen, the other parent simply won't do it. Um, and where is the child's voice in that? It's just not there. And where is the parental motivation for the for the health and well-being of that child? Because for me as a um, psychotherapist, it's all about behaviour. It's all about behaviour, you know, and does the behaviour match the words consistently over time? Because that's how children learn from the people around them. They learn that when their mum or dad says this, it's followed up with the, the behaviour that matches that and it happens again and again and again. And they can then trust that that parent will do what they say that they do. So when I'm working with parents and what I talk to legal professionals about is rather than just asking, you know, what's been going on, what are the questions, look for the behaviour. So if, if you have two parents, which of those parents is motivated to be the best parent that they can be? You know, or are they just standing there blaming the other parent because they're not doing what they think they should be doing? I don't want to know about about blame. What I want to know about is what are you doing? What are you controlling in your own life that means you are trying to create a good relationship with your child and even if you're not seeing your child because it's in the court system and, and your ex has stopped you from seeing that child what attempts are you making to get in touch with that child are you sending things in the post are you trying to be creative are you trying to get a phone call with that child I want to see what you're doing to be the best parent that you can be for your for your child and children vote with their feet you were quite right in what you were saying Sir James that actually we get the relationship with our children that we deserve 
And that's not by just saying yes all the time to what they want. Sometimes it's saying no and being parental. But it is about doing what you say you're going to do when you're going to do it. And what they learn is that if you've got two parents sitting before you who are saying, oh, they badmouth me to the children when they're, they're at home. Well, actually, your child will work out who does that. Because if you've got a parent saying, oh, your mum or dad will never do this. But when the child is with that person, that doesn't happen. They learn that actually that parent lies. Mm. Children hate it when parents lie. So they start to figure you out Mm. as a parent. And then what they do is create the relationship with you that is either safe, so you get through it, um, or will be good and fulfilling. And they will vote with their feet. They have an inherent desire to know their parents. So if you've never, and I reassure many a parent by saying, look, even if you're not seeing them now, they will come and find you one day because they'll be curious. They will want to know. And so I prepare them a story. This is, I thought about you every birthday. I've done this. I've put this aside for you because they will know that you've been thought of my own brother did this with his children who were taken away to France he bought them a Christmas present and a birthday present every every year and stored them up in the attic and so now they're adults and they came back Mm. he's like I've kept them they're probably totally inappropriate now but this was me trying to to be involved in in your life when I couldn't be this is why it's so damaging the process we have doesn't involve the children I mean, I think many lawyers are reluctant about it. It requires skill as a judge, actually, to have what may be a difficult conversation with a child. Some judges have the skills, some don't. It's got nothing to do with how senior you are, it's got nothing to do with how clever you are. It's a much more human skill. One of the problems we forget, because when we see the children, if ever, they tend to be teenagers or teenagers. And that is the one age which most judges are not familiar with, because by then their children are no longer teenagers and their grandchildren are not yet teenagers. So in fact, judges are not currently familiar dealing with children of that age of that age range. I think it's that's why we need to involve children in the process much more, and much and much earlier as well, and much earlier. Yeah. And it's very interesting. Um, because I think I'm right in saying in Germany, I take as an example, it is routine for the judge to see a child from an age which I think the last time I heard is six or seven. And I mean, on occasions when I've been at conferences uh, with family judges from Europe, they are incredulous to hear that the family judges in this country do not, as a matter of basic routine, speak to the children. And they say, well, how can you do your job? What is the answer to that? Well, it's a name on paper. We just don't. What's very interesting is very too many advocates are not prepared to push that point. I mean, I had a case some years ago, very complex case, involving I think a sixteen-year-old girl by then. This was a I think care kid who had a very very different background, come through triumphantly, and I was told she wanted to come to court and sit in. She wanted to see who the judge was. And counsel got up very different. So he began up by saying, well, I've got a most unusual application to make, my lord, which I don't imagine will find much faith in your lordship. 
He said, I said, well, why on earth not? Of course she wants to come. And what, what I did was we, I decided she would come uh, when nothing in court was going to be particularly harmful. And as I imagined, within 30 minutes, she found it incredibly boring and she went away. <laughs> but what was striking, what struck me, was the assumption of lawyers that they had to go through the motions of asking. But they didn't. They didn't. They expected the answer would be no. It goes back to the human nature of our job and the fact that you know some people have been through these situations in their personal lives. Some people haven't. Doesn't necessarily matter. But people don't. People need to understand working the system that we're dealing with people. We're dealing with children who have emotions. Of course, they're going to want to come to court. Of course, they're going to want to get involved in the proceedings. Aren't they? And someone um, and may, may, want, may want may want to talk to the judge. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter what what your reaction. You you. Simply being there and listening, but I mean there are tremendous institutional obstacles to this. I mean, back in 2014, um, I set up a working party, which was to explore the way in which the family courts dealt with children and vulnerable parties, and they very quickly came up with a report, which, amongst other things, said that children. Be, the starting point would be children, and this is a very good reason why they should not, should be able to see the judge. And they drafted a set of rules. Um, the distant ancestor was now FP3AA, um, which in effect put in the rules. Very sensible stuff about, and in effect, and children should be able to come and see the judge, and that's a very good reason why not. And I never managed to push it through. There was complete opposition to it. Uh, from Kafkas and from the government. Because Kafkas said, well, of course, we can't, it's not part of our remit. I mean, we can't bring the children to court. Um, so they looked to us to do this. And the government simply wouldn't do it because it was the money involved. And uh, I battered on for years about this. And eventually, some very watered down rule was put in force, which has the giveaway phrase that nothing in this rule permits the court to incur public expenditure. Um, and then I got some media mouth letter from the uh, minister, which unhappily for the minister reached me five days before the that year's Young People's Conference. So I read out the relevant bit of the letter. And uh, the letter talked about operational difficulties. And I said, well, you may be asking, what on earth is meant by operational difficulties? It means it costs too much. That is why I fear Going back to where this all began. Yeah. That is why I fear that we will not get um, the kind of reaction from Whitehall and Westminster to Stephen Knott's proposals which we need. If we go back in history, why was the Children Act such a success? Why was the process which led to the Children Act so much a success? Because it was pushed through the House of Lords by Lord Mackay, who was a Lord Chancellor who understood these things and was deeply committed to the proposition that something had to be done. And he was in the House of Lords, pushing it through the House of Lords. There was no figure like We have no figure of standing or experience uh, in government today. That's not to criticise individuals. It's not the way government is organised. Mm-hmm. And that is why, um, unless we have what I see as this fundamental need uh, for some, a change in the structures in Whitehall, Westminster, we will not see a proper implementation of the kind of things which the Cobb is talking about, particularly if they're going to cost money. But mm-hmm. it's so 
so short-sighted, isn't it? Because surely, surely prevention is better than cure. Surely, you know, in terms of cost, if if we take children's mental health, that one area, our children are struggling. And for many professionals that work within schools as children's counsellors, a majority of the children they're seeing are from separated parents, you know, and and if they have a school counsellor, if they have a school counsellor, absolutely, Edward. Yeah. But but in in many respects, you know, it goes right back, doesn't it? If we could invest in early intervention for the majority of families who do not need to go to a court to resolve a dispute. If we could just give them that information, education, training and support right at the beginning. A SPIP, if if parents are, are told to, to go on a SPIP from a court, it's too that's too late at that point. And the tragedy is, so I mean I sadly in cases which I have done in the past, which have been entrenched, people go to a SPIP well down the line and they come back and they say, goodness me, and that sometimes the people you would not expect to come back, they get something from a SPIP. They do, which, and they say, know, but we should have had this. Long ago, long before all this happened. So if we can create an environment where, you know, all all the family law professionals know where their nearest parenting information programme is, because there are many throughout the country Mm. um, run by, you know, I run one. I've got colleagues who run them. They're all over the UK. You know, what, what we need is everyone to know where they are and that they're good enough. Uh, and that they are going to do what it says on the tin so that we we are preparing parents for this journey. And it does there's, an, yeah. there's another structural problem here. Mm. I mean, you rightly refer to children's mental health problems. And it's notorious that children of broken families, like children care, disproportionately do not feature in university, disproportionately do feature in prisons, in mental health hospitals, and so on and so forth. I'd add interject, badly handled broken families. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. But um, those, the costs of that don't fall on the budgets of those who are involved with the family justice system. And if the the consequence of not dealing appropriately in a judicial system with the children is the child has mental health problems, well, that's the responsibility of the NHS. It doesn't fall on the MOJ budget. The fragmentation of the resources and the fact that they're spread against amongst so many different government budgets means that um, those who can do something, like, for example, in a care situation where the local should be doing more pre-proceedings work, mm-hmm. so as to make sure that children in care don't end up in prisons or hospitals, well, they're, in a sense, they don't get the benefit of it. I mean, their responsibility for the child ends at 18. They are not responsible um, for paying the costs further down the line. And that is why the approach has to be holistic. But part of the problem with the need for a holistic approach is that the institutions, the structures of government, and the financial structure of government are completely antipathetic uh, to a holistic joined-up system. I think we are, we're all agreed on that, Sir James, I think. I think I would be a little bit more optimistic, perhaps, coming from the, the lens of no-fault divorce. Mm. You know, people said things wouldn't change. People said that things would remain. Nigel Shepherd fought a campaign for resolution for 25 years on this subject, going back to 1996. You know, it's such a such a hard fought campaign, and, and it did change. And now we have got the prison, which where, where couples can apply for divorce together, where they come and see us, looking for solutions together. It does give an opportunity, I think, 
to CSE changing the way we approach mm. children matters. So I think we all the evidence is out there, isn't it? As Adele has identified. Well, it's interesting, it's interesting you say that because one of the points that Stephen Cobb makes in the report may sound a trivial point is the way in which you entitle the proceedings is adversarial. When it says Jones v versus mm. Smith, um, and that is why the fact that you can jointly petition is such a clever device because it immediately strips out the adversarial nature of the thing. You can at least agree on one thing, which is you're going to go to court and make a joint application. Um, and that lesson needs perhaps to be transport, transported into the private law system. And interesting, I mean, his suggestion that perhaps that the proceedings should not be called um, Smith v. Jones, but should be actually called in the matter of the child. It's a sort of small thing, but it's um and it's, and, it's and, and, you're, yes, and you're right about the machinery of Whitehall. But actually, when when the no for divorce bill came before Parliament, there was very little opposition to that. Ultimately, you know, there were some headbangers on certain wings of certain parties, but the vast majority of MPs are human beings who have families who are affected by divorce, who have children mm-hmm. who you know have been through divorces and you know, all sorts of things, and, and they reckon they would recognise one would hope mm-hmm. um, the damage that the current family justice system reeks on families in the same way that the no no fault divorce was so necessary so i think it's a machinery issue rather than the people issue in terms of the problem is that i mean everybody understands what a divorce is or things Mm. they do um and it's quite so narrow in terms of a legal process it's actually quite a narrow thing compared to an endless private law children's dispute so it's much easier in a sense focusing the thinking of members of parliament who are not lobbyists on something like divorce um, because as a concept, it's easy to understand. And as a concept, it's quite easy to get over the, the key points. And it's much more difficult, in a sense, getting the points over um, in relation to private law children cases. And of course, it's made much, 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 much more difficult by the inadequate way in which we currently handle cases involving domestic abuse in the, in the court setting. I mean, was it the harm report, as it was called? Was that 2020, 2021? Mm-hmm. It was a shaming document, absolutely shocking to anybody who read it and had eyes to see. And then, rightly, the then junior ministers, five junior ministers back probably by now, um, made some point about it, which was actually, in terms of white speak, pretty strong stuff, criticizing the family justice system. But what has yet been done to deal with that problem? I don't know the answer. What I do know is that there was that case in the Court of Appeal about a year after the Armour Court, um, dealing with, with three conjoined appeals in relation to domestic abuse, which showed shocking failure by senior judges, mm-hmm. senior trial judges, to understand what they were dealing with. And I mean, I'm surprised in the sense that Stephen Cobb still keeps doing this. I mean, he's been the judge dealing with reform of private family law ever since he was appointed to judge back in, I think, 2012. Um, and he, he, I asked, back then to deal with the private law programme. It was he who I asked to do a drastic revision of PD-12J, which deals with uh, domestic abuse, make it fit for purpose. Now I've done this report. And in a sense, it's all the same stuff. But actually getting the message over. And so, what was so depressing yeah. about those appeals in the Court of Appeal was here were good judges, conscientious judges, who got it horribly badly wrong. So you were saying and there's a credibility partly, gap then? Part, so. partly, partly it was simply pressure, but there is a credibility gap. Yeah. And that is why 
I, mean, I can understand that. that is why women's aid, other um, women's pressure groups, focus on judicial training. They ask me, are the judges being properly trained on this? Because so, they yeah. say that what was revealed in those cases suggests they're not being properly trained. And the system doesn't help itself. It won't actually answer the question. It's a matter of principle, judicial training is a judicial matter. Um, and the form of judicial training is not for public dissemination. If you actually ask the question, what training are the judges getting on PD12J? What you get is some anodyne form of words that um, uh, the judges are receiving appropriate training uh, in relation to matters of this and that. And if you then say, well, who's doing the training? Answer comes to now. So you say a lot of the noise around these cases, understandably, because it, it is disgraceful and it's terrible. Well, some, some of it is shocking. Yeah. There's some of that noise takes away the focus from the very essential debate that needs to be had but, about the cases to come out of the court. But the other problem is that particular focus, that particular shameful conduct, crystallised itself in a gender dispute. And the modern divorce debate was not really gender-specific. By the time the outside the Act was going through, nobody was really sort of saying the system is anti-women or pro-men. Whereas so much of the public debate about the perceived failings of the family justice system in relation to private law children cases is that there's gender bias, gender discrimination, that the particular issues of women in abusive relationships are not understood by the judges, that PD12J is not being applied, not being properly applied, that the advocates are not properly getting PD12J. And, it's, and, and it's, sorry, Adele, just very quickly, and, it's, and, and issues around... Um, experts as well in these cases and particularly in cases involving parental, alleged parental alienation a real problem for the, for the courts as well well that's another aspect i mean the that's a whole whole podcast on its own isn't yeah, it but, I mean, <laughs> short, the law was changed in 2013 right as a vigorous support of this the you couldn't have an expert unless it's necessary and the very first judgment i gave as president spelt that out and said necessary means necessary it's we've been tightened up and we've got to have fewer experts I said the facts and care case, we've got two experts already, we've got the social worker and the guardian. We, and what's happened over the intervening years, and I think the stats bear this out, we've slipped back and allowed many experts being used to the word pre-2013. And this, this I'm afraid, is the responsibility of the judges. The judges are not being sufficiently robust in questioning why it is you want an expert. Why do we need an expert in this case? What kind of expert do we need? And who is the expert? And who is the expert? And is the person who professes to be an expert, what is their expertise, what's their qualification? And I think, and this again is another manifestation of the problems caused by um, grotesque overwork judges. It's any human nature. If you're a judge in a busy list, some counsel come in and say, we've had discussions in the corridor, we've reached an agreed order, and we've agreed that there should be this. Very tempting for the judge to say, thank you very much, I'll make the order and move on to the next case. And the cynic, the wise judge, some would say the cynical judge, should be most on his or her guard when presented with an agreed order. Why have they agreed? It's probably without horse trading. It probably means none of the orders, right? Uh, and I think judges are not sufficient. And I understand why I mean, they don't have the time. They have uh, grotesquely overburdened caseloads. They don't have the time. There isn't the judicial continuity, which there should be. That's a major, major, major problem in the system at present. That people who are not experts 
are being put in to give expert expert evidence. Doesn't be an expert at all. I just wanted to just go back to that uh, what we were talking about domestic abuse because you know we are all unique human beings. We have all grown up within our own family unit, not how, however that looks. And one of the questions I ask everybody who comes to see me um, as a client is, have you ever been in a relationship in at any point in your life that you would put under the umbrella of unhealthy, toxic, abusive, anything that would, yeah. would fit that? Yeah. It's amazing. It never ceases to amaze me how many people say no, absolutely not. And then as we progress through the sessions, I, I realised actually, yes, they have, but they don't know it. And it, I remember one case that was referred to me many, many years ago uh, from the family court. It was a couple and uh, they were both incredibly violent with each other. They both had knives at each other's throats, et cetera, et cetera. It was really, really bad. And normally I would not see the two together, but actually they, there was no dominant person here they were equal in their violence towards each other and when I was speaking to them I was asking them about their their family life you know that as I do I always ask about upbringing and both of them had grown up in extremely violent homes where their parents who'd been married for a long long time had been violent with each other it was their normal so when they came together and their relationship was violent together that was that was they didn't know any different so we all come into this job we're working with families but we're bringing our idea of normal into that Mm. and so we have to be really careful when ticking that box on the form the abuse when talking to our clients and they say it's been an abusive relationship we can't just take it that we understand what that word means and in, in what context it means. I was going to, to ask you about that because one of the, the reforms that's envisaged and, you know, I think actually has been trialled in Dorset and North Wales at the mm. moment in the Pathfinder courts is this two-tier system, the system of safety domestic abuse cases and then cases that you know, shouldn't be going through the court. Yeah. Are you saying it's just not as black, as black and white as that in your perspective as a, a therapist? As well? I think we have to be better educated. We have mm. to be able to not only listen to the words that people say, we have to look at the behaviour that backs it up. We have to be able to have more than one conversation with somebody if we're going to go away and write a report about them, whoever they are. And I think we need to understand, I think we just need to be better interviewers. We need to have curious conversations rather than knowing conversations. So that if I say, I, you know, I really felt unsupported mm-hmm. and um, they were really abusive to me. OK, well, what talk to me about that? What did that look like? Mm-hmm. Tell me about an incident that happened or something that happened that made you think that. And what you're doing is you're questioning and questioning and making sure. And you're mm-hmm. not questioning because you don't believe them. You're questioning to find out you're being curious and as therapists. Mm-hmm. It's it's one of the first things we learn and one, one, to be yeah, curious. One of the things that come out for me as a mediator in the pandemic has been a revelation has been the work of mediation on Zoom. But actually the fact that there are there will be situations where people will have been in abusive relationships where plainly mediation is never going to be appropriate, even when they're in different rooms. But there are people who can come into mediation, particularly if they're supported by a lawyer in a hybrid setting, and they can talk about issues when they're in separate rooms, even though there has been domestic abuse. You, you, you can't just blankly write off mediation 
because there's been domestic abuse. Yeah, but yeah, that is to some extent the narrative out there. Yeah, definitely. And I, uh, one of the things I learned recently, which I, I was just amazed at, was that as a professional, as a someone in the medical profession, but then as someone doing this job, I have to update my safeguarding training every two years. I have to. If I don't, I can't practice. I discovered the other day lawyers don't have to. And that, I think, is not good enough in this day and age when we have the level of abuse that goes on and the vulnerability of the clients that we're working with. Mediators, I know, um, do safeguarding when they train, but I don't think that they're required to update every two years. We have to. It should be standard. GPs do. Fire, fire, anybody who works in the services have to do their safeguarding training. Lawyers are working with some of the most complicated personalities mm. ever, mm. you know, and everybody's a narcissist these days, which is something that really annoys me because not everybody is a narcissist. We have, we can, when we're emotionally charged, have narcissistic traits. And definitely there are people with uh, personality disorders out there. However, I didn't know that lawyers had to become you know, medically qualified so that they could tell me that their client's uh, ex is a narcissist. They're not, you're not qualified. I wouldn't, I wouldn't sit there and say somebody's a narcissist because I'm not qualified to do that. This all goes back to the fundamental problem, which is what is the family justice system trying to do in a private law case? And the answer is, it is still fundamentally simply deciding a case happens to be a family case in the way in which judges traditionally decide cases about anything. And we don't appreciate that the very concept of domestic, I mean, very striking. I did this quite deliberately, the new PD-12J, which had been about domestic violence. We renamed it domestic abuse. And I mean, God knows it took long enough to get the lawyers and the family justice system to take domestic violence seriously. Um, And I don't think people are really up to speed on the fact that domestic abuse nowadays is rightly seen as a much, much wider field of human behaviour. And coercive controlling behaviour is perhaps the most striking example. But there are other forms of domestic abuse, like economic abuse. Um, and, I mean, in a sense, quite by chance, there was a case of a few weeks ago in which the question of economic abuse was raised in um, a financial remedy case. And this was treated as astonishing. The first time this, the first time the concept <laughs> is, is economic abuse a concept which is relevant to financial cases was sort of the underlying question. And the answer is in principle, yes. And I think the trouble is people do not appreciate, it's all then PD12J, they don't appreciate just what we're talking about in the context of different forms of abuse. Um, and the other problem is, there have been unbelievably shocking examples of this. Judges who simply don't take seriously allegations of marital rape. Um, and they can put themselves out of their own mouths. I mean, those, uh, and I mean, these cases are only exposed, one fears, because the women involved happen to strike lucky with a lawyer um, who is determined to get to the bottom of this and then takes the case to the court of appeal where it all comes out. And you read some of these judgments, and it is unbelievable. Your people are very good lawyers. People have been doing 
doing family law for their entire professional careers, simply have a blind spot on this. And that's not helped, I think, by the fact that fundamentally um, the problem with the family courts, with the exception of FDAG, is they're seen as providing solutions. They're not seen as solving the problems. Mm-hmm. What the family court's concerned with is identifying and providing a long-term solution to the underlying problem. They're not, shouldn't be concerned with simply deciding a particular case for the here and now. And I mean, I've long argued we need to fundamentally rebalance the family courts. So they're seen as problem-solving courts. Mm. Um, and that is as much in the context of uh, um, private family cases as they are in the context of FDA. And if they're going to do that, we have to front-load the system to bring the cases that don't need to go back to go to court into early information, into one of, one of the issues around MIAMs is, you know, why should just mediators be doing MIAMs? Should there be some, it's a far wider pool of people who can offer that early information to ensure that people get into parenting support, get into mediation. Why is child-inclusive mediation not publicly funded, for example? I mean, quite extraordinary. Well, that's not my hobby horse. I think one of the terrible mistakes made in 2013 was to identify mediation as the only officially supported out-of-court solution. There are, all, there, there, are all, there are all sorts of out-of-court solutions. And there's collaborative law, there's arbitration, there's MEDAR, there are all sorts of things. And the government simply rejected them all. I mean, yeah. I, I love it. When I'm involved in a collaborative case, I've often worked with the uh, with with um, both parents. Um, I've had several sessions with them. And then I go into the roundtable meeting with the lawyers. And it's fabulous because, you know, I add things that, that the, the legal professionals can't. And I yeah. help support the parents through that. I'm looking at communication. I'm looking at, OK, do we need to take a break just now? Yeah. Um, you know, and also it, it's it's about helping those legal professionals to demonstrate. And this is such a good way of helping parents become less combative. If 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 one of the um solicitor says you know well we're thinking about this what do you think and the other solicitor says you know that that sounds like a really sensible idea but we need to go away and think about that just now we're not going to give an answer just for a moment because we need to talk it through but it sounds reasonable because what both parents hear is legal professionals up until that point they've come in with the narrative that lawyers fight and they don't agree and they don't make good decisions and they're going to not not agree with each other or see that reason. In that moment, great work has been done just by that one sentence. That sounds reasonable. We just need to go away and think about mm. it and then we'll we'll come back to you. And it's it's a wonderful moment. And I'm, one of the most interesting conferences I ever went to was the local family justice uh, conference in Leicester some years ago. And one of the sessions was um, an interactive session with representative practitioners from eight different forms of out-of-court resolution. There were eight of them. I mean, there was was mediation, there was arbitration, I don't know, there were were eight of them. And they all, in a sense, make a sales pitch. They're all sort of saying, what I can offer, which he can't offer, is this. But of course, what he can offer, which I can offer, is that. Um, and the message on which they all agreed 
is there is no one size fits all. There is no one technique, which is the answer in every case. Horses for courses, some some cases will need this, some cases will need that, and some cases may need a mixture of the two. And that was very powerful. I was very much persuaded by that. And if it only reinforced my view, my prejudice, that mediation is a wonderful thing, but the idea that mediation is the solution, right. the only officially approved solution, the only officially funded solution, is dangerously. And yeah, that seems to be the, the, the dogma at the moment in terms of all sorts of aspects of proposed reform, in terms of possibly mandatory mediation coming to the civil sphere or the voucher scheme, that, that mediation is all one size fits it's all. In, but it's in the statute. One point is it's in the statute. And I mean, Elizabeth Butler Slots, born president in the House of Lords, she tried to change the bill. And she wanted to go for MIAMS without the M, I A M S. And there was certainly a lot of mockery of that because it turned out the name of cat food. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. So maybe but, not. But maybe she, not. I am. But, but um, she and her yeah. wisdom has seen that you know, putting all the eggs in the, in the mediation basket is not mm. in fact sensible. As ever, she had great foresight. But the trouble is, it's in the legislation. But that's something we need to review, isn't it? And yes. Revisit, revisit yes, we do. As some, a matter of some urgency. And I mean, enough time has gone by that those who were committed to it emotionally and professionally. In Whitehall, Westminster, have long since passed on. It's somebody else's mess. Well, I think it's been tremendously helpful to hear both of your views today. Uh, there's so much to chew on, and hopefully, <laughs> lot to move forward with optimistically as well. We've, we've had a we've had a good moan at times about some of the aspects of the system which aren't right, but I think there's also a lot to be optimistic that we can achieve a lot going forward on the back of this report. Thank you very much to James. Thank you very much, Adele. Thank you. And thank you for listening.